0: Here comes riches knocking on my front door. God knows I'm tired of being broken poor. My prayers answered, there's so much in store. Why not cash from ceiling to floor. Money, money, you're well
1: The Talking Cash Podcast with your host, Ben Blanchard.
0: Hello and welcome to the Talking Cash Podcast. I'm your host, Ben Blanchard. Today with me is going to be my guest, comedian Joe Prano, originating from New York, now is Los Angeles. He is the co-host of the Dirty Sports Podcast as well as the Coos of Comedy Podcast, and he can be found performing all around Los Angeles and the greater United States. Before I bring Joe on, I want to first welcome you to this new podcast that regards all topics of money, whether you're rich, whether you're poor, whether you're middle class, we talk about money and how it affects our lives with my guest. Now, I decided to start doing this podcast because money has always been an important thing in my life, not that I've necessarily had a lot of it, but it's always been something that's been on my mind, how we can change things within the rich, the poor, the middle class systems in America and the world abroad. That's kind of why I decided to start this podcast. There's not going to be an easy answer to fix all these problems, but I think that making money as a topic more openly discussed will help our own understanding of how the finances work in the greater economy. A lot of people are more open to speak about personal things such as family or tragedies or even sexual experiences, but I find that in podcasts specifically, a lot of people don't discuss their personal encounters with money. Now, that's what this podcast is going to be all about. It's going to be about stories about how we grew up with it, with our families, the societies that we grew in involving money, how we deal with it now, our vices, our expenses, and where we think we're going to go economically in the future with money as a society. One thing that's been on my mind a lot is consumerism, just coming off of the holidays. We just had Christmas, we just had Hanukkah, where there's a lot of pressure to buy gifts for people, pressure from advertisers, pressure from family, pressure from friends, from girlfriends, from boyfriends, to get that perfect gift to really kind of just encapsulate how you feel about that person in the material value. Now, this always gives me a little bit of anxiety to give gifts because I never know if I'm spending enough, if I'm giving the right gift. All these things creep up into my mind as the holidays come around. And as I'm getting older, it's getting a little bit easier. There's less pressure. My parents understand that I'm in a different financial system than they are. I'm not making as much money as they do. And my dad's actually been doing this cool thing recently. been giving me nostalgia-based gifts such as uh, last year he gave me an original copy of George Carlin's Class Clown from 1982, which was one of the first comedy albums I ever listened to. This year, he also gave me, uh, he was a mad magazine collector when I was a kid growing up, so he gave me a few different uh, mint copies. with was some pictures of me from my childhood, pictures from him from his childhood, the years that those magazines came out. So pretty cool things, some more creative ideas to take the pressure off of the more materialistic aspects of the holidays. But now we're in the new year, so let's do some new stuff, including this podcast. So I'd like to start it right now. But before I play the interview for you, it should be noted that this is my first time doing a podcast. I am not a professional interviewer. I'm doing everything myself. I'm doing the interviews, I'm editing, I'm booking the people on the podcast. So please bear with me if there's some novice mistakes that occur throughout the interview. Also, it should be noted that this talk happened in June of 2015. That was six months ago. So there are some references towards summertime and towards some events that have already happened that won't really make too much sense currently. Everything else is pretty contemporary and pretty timeless in terms of the topic of money. So without further ado, please welcome my guest, Joe Prano. So how are you, man? We're going, so. Good. I'm great. Thanks for having me. Yeah, of course, man. It's uh, It's been a cool, interesting ride starting the podcast. Had some good conversations. So.
1: Yeah, i I don't know of anybody else that's doing anything money related. Did you? Is this why you chose it? Or
0: yeah, I mean, I always wanted to kind of like do a podcast, but have like a little bit of a niche um, and have like a straight on topic, right? Because I feel like everything else has kind of been done already. And my concept of like money is that I love podcasts and love how people get open about it and how people are very sincere with their history and their past, but yeah. people rarely talk about finance in general and it's this thing that affects everyone it's kind of this universal topic yeah so i want to kind of get that topic like out more into the open
1: i feel like people are just afraid to ask about it you know right. you don't want to ask somebody about their money you don't want to situation. offend
0: anyone you know but
1: if you come into a show like this and you know it's all going to be about that i think it's pretty cool yeah awesome. exactly
0: and there's you know it's at least the ones that i've done so far there's been you know some nice tangents that have Been at the seed of money, but also have kind of branched out into these other topics and everything like that. So we got Joe Prano here. Thanks for having me, dude. (laughs) The the stash is in full effect. The stash. I took the beard down. Yeah, last time uh, I saw you, you were uh, rocking the big beard. But so I'm
1: going to New York next week to do uh, my to film my special and to throw out the first pitch at a Mets game. And I felt it was appropriate to have you're in
0: like total baseball garb right now. He's got the three quarter (laughs) shirt on, the 1970s pitching shirt. He's got the mustache, the Mets hat, clean, crisp. I'm I'm going.
1: I'm going all in on the character.
0: Yeah, by the time this is out, you'll probably be—I've uh, already accomplished that. But Joe's throwing the first pitch of the Mets game, so that's pretty cool. Yeah, yeah, nice, man. And what's the uh, what's the special going to be called? Have you named it yet?
1: Um, I've had a couple of different ideas, but I haven't settled on something. Uh,
0: so no,
1: by by like you said, by the time it comes out, it'll probably be called something. But just put my name into iTunes, and
0: it'll be there. So you're wearing the Mets hat. Are you from New York?
1: I'm from New York. Yes, nice. I uh, I was born in New York City and then uh, grew up in Westchester.
0: Now Westchester usually has an affiliate. It's near Connecticut, correct? Westchester is near Connecticut. Yeah, so if you go straight north from
1: the city, um, you would go to Westchester. If you kind of go like north and like hug the uh, Long Island Sound, you'd be in Connecticut. So I actually went to high school in Greenwich, Connecticut.
0: Lived in New York. Okay, yeah. so so we got Westchester and Greenwich. Two very affluent communities in the New York area. Absolutely, yeah. Uh,
1: Westchester, um, my parents moved to Westchester. Well, actually, they were in Westchester. They were in kind of southern Westchester in, like, the Irvington area, which is not your, like, affluent, like, not Westchester as you would know it from TV or anything like that. Like, Martha Stewart lived in northern Westchester and shit like that, Ralph and all that shit. But uh, they moved up there when I was born, so kind of my arrival prompted them to get a little bit more space my parents get a little bit more space and it was pretty early on i kind of think in the what would have been like a westchester boom where everybody who had money uh newish kind of money was like we want our country home and greenwich is all these old money you know plymouth rock old school wasps where do all these first generation second generation rich go and westchester became kind of the destination a lot of Lot of space and acreage and gotcha. plots of land to build houses and stuff like that. So
0: cool. So what did your folks do when uh, when
1: you were growing up? My dad worked in fashion. Um, he was the head of production for a couple of big designers when I was really young. He was the head of production for Ralph Lauren. Then he actually started his own company, uh, which was based in Westchester for a hot minute, and then uh, still he, with fashion. Yeah, still yeah. with fashion. He was making kind of. I mean, he was Italian, born in Italy, and and you know moved over here when he was like thirteen. So then he started doing like European style, like raincoats and and top coats for men and women and shit like that. And then that didn't go so well. He went back to work for a designer, worked for Donna Karen for a long time when I was in middle school and high school. Okay, so he was
0: that. kind of the man in the fashion industry. He was kind of the man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It
1: was it was awesome being uh, having your dad be in fashion and just being able like. I was able to keep up with the Joneses fashion wise, just because of right. His... Well,
0: you're always one season
1: ahead. Yeah, probably. yeah, yeah, <laughs> exactly. Um, so it was, yeah, it was great, and uh, and he did pretty well for himself. You know, like I said, he was that first generation kind of wealthy. He made money. It was
0: like, almost like the the kind of turn of the century, like turn of the 20th century. Yeah, when immigrants were coming over, he was kind of like that new wave. So, did you get to like meet like Ralph Lauren or or any of these fashion moguls at any point in your life at a at a did, Christmas I met, party? I mean, I
1: met I met Donna Karen, uh, who like I don't know if men listening to this would that name would ring a bell, but it's definitely like a big name in fashion. Which right. I didn't know at the time, but I would always go when I was a little bit older, you know, middle school, high school, stuff like that. I would go visit him at the office, and it was like okay. We're gonna go see, you know, Donna, and it's like, okay, I don't know. And now, now I'm like, holy sandwich! (laughs) Yeah, totally (laughs) chilling. Um, I uh. think I met, might have met Ralph when I was like younger, because my dad worked for him in like the early '80s, but I don't remember that.
0: So, like, going to the office is it just like a completely different world? Like when your dad was, you had like at home dad who you knew, and then like office dad was he just crushing it? I mean, demanding people? No, not at all. My dad
1: was totally the same guy in both places and that i think is why he was well really well liked he was just a nice fun super chill guy just happy very charming yeah Yeah. a little italian guy so sharp so funny and uh, the only thing that i saw different is like you would go to his office which is like this big fashion you know house and and there's all these models walking around doing fittings whatever like that and i realized oh my dad's a fucking pimp like like he's not hitting on a ton of chicks at home but at the office he's hitting on a ton of chicks. <laughs> <laughs> yes
0: that's where he gets it out. yeah and i was like and it's okay. all legit too yeah, yeah. This is his job totally so successful dad makes it sound like mom wasn't working too much, or was she? She was working in
1: fashion as well, which is how they met when I was really young. And then, yes, he kind of started to do a lot better. And she had four – you know, there was four of us kids. Right. Uh, when we all kind of hit our – an age where it was like, wow – taking care of four kids that are like five to 13 is
0: it's insane right i I can't even imagine my my dad had uh nine siblings in his family and they were like modestly wealthy not like middle class and i'm just like i can't even imagine raising two kids let alone nine right (laughs) you know it's like (laughs) i have a hard time raising myself yeah it's just like you know you don't have to do that anymore it's not like we're working the farm and we need hands to like till the land like we're good you (laughs) know nine yeah Yeah. putting together a football team yeah exactly it's crazy but yeah, so she,
1: she stopped working and was and was kind of a house mom for a long time. But she did a lot of stuff around town, like she it always seemed like she was picking up a job, like doing something. Yeah. Mom's um, super smart, one of the smartest people I've ever met. So she was always kind of doing something, even if it was, like, volunteer this or... Always going to stay busy. Yeah, like, drove an ambulance for the Volunteer Ambulance Corps for a while or, like, runs, the, you know, the swim team and right. all that shit.
0: So when you were growing up in in Westchester, I'm sure you went to school with some people whose parents were completely, like, unbelievably rich. And did you see, like, any poverty in, in that district? Did you go like, private school, public school? I mean,
1: I went to private school my whole life, basically. Like, when I was a kid, I went to a... Catholic school in in the town of Bedford, which I'm from Cotona's part of the town of bedford it's uh it was just like a nice little parochial school and there was you know there was definitely some kids who were like more well off than others and then when I was in sixth grade i I moved to this prep school in Connecticut called Brunswick, and that was where really the wealth of kind of our area hit me that there was this like whole other level out there that i wasn't even aware of our house is really nice just a different strategy. Yeah, we have a pool and then going to brunswick i was like oh we have a yacht yeah yeah. totally where it was like oh you guys made a ton of money like a long time ago and now we're just making money on money. money yeah on money and it was like yachts and like Ranches, you know, and like horse farms and just fleets of cars. Like, that was when I was just like, holy shit, there is a whole other level. So, yeah, I saw some crazy $20 million houses and shit like that. In Westchester, you're not around a ton of like real poverty but like Southern Westchester and I was always an athlete. So it was like always going down to like Mount Vernon or New Rochelle or something like that to play football. And you're like, oh shit, these kids are all black and they hate us. They definitely don't have a yacht either. Uh, So there's, there's definitely some like not great parts of Westchester, but as a kid, I, you know, I certainly wasn't worried about getting
0: shot. So sports was kind of your first introduction into like learning that there was a different level of lack of wealth. I guess I should say like in your community, that's how you Kind of get introduced to because yeah. you must have been living kind of in a bubble totally. up until a certain age.
1: Totally, and and like it was like I guess in a way probably around middle school. Like my my worldview was like only so big. I was like, okay, people can be this poor, and then they can be this rich. And then when I went to Brunswick, I was like, no, people can get a whole lot more rich than anybody you know. And then you're just traveling around doing sports. And you're like, wow, people can get like a whole lot more poor where like they don't have their own custom jackets and they don't have their <laughs> shit, you know and it's it's a sports thing it's like a socioeconomic thing you know like black communities like play a lot of basketball like right. that's a thing and you would go okay i'm on a really good basketball team we're gonna go play a really good basketball team and you're like holy shit there ain't no bake sale where all these kids are making their
0: fucking yeah. jordan money yeah you know? yeah exactly With sports, it's kind of a nice equalizer because basketball, soccer, it's pretty easy and and to pick up and cheap. Yeah. There's courts around, there's goals around. But yeah, I remember seeing a different way of life, but connecting through the sport. When you were playing in high school, were they making jokes or trash talk about where you came from and stuff? I mean, was there any of that? For the
1: most part, like when I was playing like high school varsity sports, we were, I went, you know, I was in like a prep school and we played a lot of prep schools. Yeah. Everybody, you know, we played a lot of boarding schools and, And all that shit. And then – but like every once in a while, we'd have a football game where we bust in some team from wherever and they'd kick the shit out of us. Right. Like rich motherfuckers. Yeah, and they're off the schedule next year. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And I remember we went to like – my basketball team went to the New England Championships and we went – we had to like go up like outer Bridgeport, Connecticut or something like that where it was like definitely a poorer town and those kids were – it was a lot of like – not only are we going to kick your ass, we're going to tell you why we're kicking your ass your whole time. Like, yeah. Oh, yeah. They didn't teach you this at the fucking country club, did they? Right. Hammer dunk. And you're like, oh, geez. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Like, no, no, they did not yes. do <laughs> By the way, I am not a member of a country yeah. club, but a lot of my teammates <laughs> are. So why don't you focus
0: on that? <laughs> yeah. Leave me away from the posterizing. Yeah. In high school, was it just sports? Like, did you need to get a job? where your parents, like, you should go and and work a few hours a week? Or was it just, like, focus on sports? Yeah, for me,
1: I kind of tried to find a way to make all that work. Like, I was uh, in a baseball camp, like a local baseball camp, my whole, you know, for, like, five years as a kid. And when I was finally old enough to, like, drive myself somewhere, I was like, hey, I want to work here. And so my very first job was, like, being a... 15-year-old counselor at a baseball camp for, you know, younger kids like I was teaching, you know, like 8 and 9-year-olds yeah, yeah. how to like play and teach them all the stuff that I learned when I was their age at that same camp, you know, kind of like a junior counselor you know, 30 bucks a day or whatever.
0: Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. Though. So your first job was basically just a ho- like your hobby. Yeah. That you're getting paid some cash. Yeah, about. exactly. And then when I was in, uh, and then
1: like my, my real first job, I like delivered pizza, you know, which was like, my mom was like, okay, we're going to get you a car, but you have to pay for your fucking insurance. And I was like, okay, uh, uh what's
0: insurance. Again? Yeah. <laughs> and then I was like,
1: I just want to drive my car around and listen to music. I should deliver pizza. Yeah. Right. <laughs>
0: like, so. So it sounds like your dad and your mom both had, like, a pretty hard work ethic. Like, did they instill that in you at a young age? Um, My dad
1: definitely is crazy because they're both – one thing I think they instilled was, like – find a way to really enjoy what you're doing. Like my dad worked a ton. He traveled a ton for work, but he loved it. He loved going to Europe and he loved going to like Hong Kong and going to all these factories and doing this. Like he was a man who loved to like travel. And my mom was a person who like really liked being, you know, kind of like the center of the community and being like, I'm the smartest one. Everybody asked me what to do. So it was like, it wasn't really like a instilling like a big work ethic. They weren't like, go dig ditches. It was like, find what you want to do and like spend a lot of time doing it. That was something that I, they definitely instilled in me at a young age, not even by saying it, just by kind of demonstrating, demonstrating, demonstrating. it. Yeah, yeah. yeah.
0: And so like, cause your dad, so he was an immigrant from Italy at, then he moved here at 13, you said. Yep. Have you met his side of the family there? Yeah. Yeah. Okay, cool.
1: Um, went over to Italy a couple times and then obviously my grandparents moved with him, you know, when they were. When he was a kid, and they were adults, they all moved over here with his brother and uh And then I think like there was a couple you know my grandmother's sister was like their neighbor in the Bronx, and there was like a little bit of family here, but most of their family was over in Italy and I went over twice in high school and then once when I was really young and met all of them and did that whole beach town in Italy, <laughs> family hang thing.
0: Did yeah. you feel like a, kind of an outcast, even though you were part of the family because you were American? or
1: A little bit, but we actually had, it was like a weird, almost exchange program. Every summer, some cousin... In Italy was getting married and they would come on their honeymoon to New York and like live at our house. And so we always had these people. And, you know, like I said, I made three trips, I think, over there ever. And, you know, I think my sister went a couple more times. But we had so many people coming that, like, when we would go, it was like, oh, we're going to return the favor of basically being, like, a honeymoon destination for yeah, a yeah, generation yeah. Of, of our family. So we were, like, just treated like kings and queens, honestly. Like, er- like they just feed you and make you do everything and like, try this, go here, take the motorcycle. Like, please do everything. We love you so much. <laughs> so it was, like, an outsider because I didn't speak the language. But, total, like, it was r- – Okay. Honestly, like, felt like royalty.
0: So, like, when you see like how your dad grew up, and were you kind of like shocked, or was it pretty much the same as you were used to? Like, was it just like a middle class in Italy? Because I imagine at least that point, so he probably moved here when like the fifties or the forties. Yeah, fifties. And so they must have had like a little money to be able to kind of make that journey uproot their entire family and move to america it yeah. wasn't like straight ellis island stuff no i imagine
1: i mean it, he came through ellis island and all right. that but it was you know and it was definitely a let's go to america for a better life but they weren't they certainly weren't like a poor family in italy that was like we've got to get out of here just to like survive <laughs> right, you know what right. i mean my dad's family my, my grandmother's side of the family was from this like little beach town in calabria and they literally owned cafe like a cafe on the main strip and like across the street from that cafe on the main strip like a bakery which would sound like almost the exact same thing but like <laughs> one was like we serve coffee yeah. one was like we serve coffee and cannolis yeah, yeah. And yeah exactly and then down by the beach they had like another, like, cafe slash, like, gelato. So they're spot. just
0: running the beach cafe. Yeah. Scene.
1: Just like the beach. Yeah. Which yeah. is hilarious because it's like, well, they own three in town. It's like, yeah, well, there's 4,000. Right. So, <laughs> you know, like, everywhere just serves coffee and gelato. And yeah. like, they definitely had a very like so they're entrepreneurial totally yeah. and you know the building above one of the cafes was where like half the family lived and the building over to one of the other ones where the rest of the family lived three floors up they all just were like we we'll get up in the morning yeah, we'll walk go downstairs, downstairs and go to work um and then my my grandfather's side of the family was from like a more rural area and it was like kind of like winery situation there was like grown grapes stomp and wine the whole thing. They they were very it was like very Italian and they were just like kind of like middle of the road Italian folks.
0: That's interesting, man.
1: So you graduated
0: from the prep schools in Bedford. Go to college? Yep, Lehigh University, Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. That was where what was the decision to go there?
1: So I went to this like really nice prep school and Kids out of there. It's like, okay, you're going to Penn because your dad went to Penn and his dad went to Penn. Legacy and, and, stuff, yeah. all that shit. And then like, and then there are people just like, where do you want to go? It's like, I don't know, Duke. And it's like, okay, we'll write the biggest check ever and hopefully you'll get in. And I was definitely not like my my family is definitely not on that level. We were just like my where dad making a couple a hundred wing grand of a, a year, of a you know. Hospital and, and, yeah. yeah, yeah. Like my the 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 money people donated to get their kids in school it was to, more like, than your yeah, family more than family my dad had. made yeah. a year. And we lived in a fucking great house, like yeah. it was like really nice, but it was like totally next level. So, um, I applied to like eighteen schools, didn't know where I wanted to go. Sports was like a big thing, but like the schools I wanted to go to I would never like have played baseball. Like you got into UCLA, but I'm like, I'm not making the UCLA baseball yeah. team. So it was kind of like, Can I play sports? Can I not? And so Lehigh just ended up being the best school where ac- do academically that I could get into and where I thought maybe I had a chance of playing ball. And so I hadn't even seen it until I like went to school there. Like my guidance counselor was just like just go to Lehigh. It's close, it's a great school. Go for it. So you just went in blind? I went in blind, yeah. Yeah. And you played baseball there, though? I didn't. I mean, I I attempted to, but I hurt my back my senior year of high school. Uh, And then, like, between trying to play ball and trying to do rehab and trying to, like – do actual college school work as a freshman, I was like, this isn't. Yeah. I was like, I might make the baseball team and fail out of school. And then it's like, I'm not really on the baseball team. So, yeah, so I just you can't like, be on the team if you're not uh, enrolled in, the, in yeah. the college. So I was like, fuck it. I gave it up. And, uh, probably one of the big regrets. I think I, Gave up the game a little bit too early just because I was a late bloomer and uh, And
0: it's a tough game. Like it's not like you can go play pickup baseball yeah. anymore, you know, like it's not like basketball or soccer where you can kind of still live out your old childhood dreams of exactly uh, of, of being a star in your own mind. You yeah. Know? Yeah. <laughs> you can't really do that with baseball.
1: Yeah, so I, I mean I played like one summer after I think like I played like, you know, men's league ball to see where I like stood up and then I was just like, Man, I'm I just wanna go out and drink beer like
0: the dr- <laughs> Yeah, yeah. The dream's, the dreams over. Dreams. Yeah. Like, I just want to be Sam Malone now. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, what were you studying at Lehigh? I studied journalism. Basically,
1: when I decided, kind of, in at the end of high school, that I probably wasn't going to be in the big leagues, even if I played in college or whatever. Like, my as a kid, I was just like, "Oh, I'm I'll just be a professional baseball player." Totally. Like, duh. Isn't that what you're all trying to do yeah. too? I kind of like was like, "What else would you even want to do with your life?" And uh, I was, like, obsessed with Letterman <laughs> as, like, a 15-year-old, like, staying up late and watching him, like, mm-hmm. you know, run the Taco Bell drive through and all that shit. And I was like, man, what a great gig that is. And then you probably found out that he was a weatherman and a yeah. journalist. And-, and Yeah. And so I was like, okay, go to school for broadcast journalism. And then when I was, like, a sophomore, I read Bill Zemi's, like, bio on him, which was, oh, he worked at the comedy store in L.A. And I was like, oh, maybe I'll take a stand-up. So it's it's all kind of been in the works for a while. Just I wanted to do broadcasting, and then I started doing comedy. And so Letterman has has led you to the
0: path that you're totally here on now. Yeah,
1: totally. I mean, that's a hundred percent. Like I was I was into comedy as a kid. Like I was like I listened to Eddie Murphy tapes and yeah. all that shit. Like everybody. But the whole comedy dream was, oh, this is a means to an end. So I can just one day, you know, sit behind a desk, kiss hot bitches, you know, <laughs>
0: work the Taco yeah. Bell drive-through. Yeah, yeah. Point to the band guy and, <laughs> yeah. and smile. You started saying up that early in college? Yeah. I was, uh, I
1: think I had, I, start, I actually took a class in, uh, in New York at, at the comic strip. I think I started that class when I was like 19 and maybe went on my first couple open mics when I was like 19, but I think I was like 20 when I f- did my first show at a club.
0: So you started, were you doing gigs at Lehigh too? Or I was. Was doing, there not even a scene there? Yeah,
1: there was not. there was definitely not a scene there in terms of like going into the town or whatever. Like, Bethlehem is a crazy place. It was the home of Bethlehem Steel, which was like at one point the biggest steel in the country. But then all that shit was shut down, and it was kind of like a rusted out – Town, you know, just like a one post of post-industrial,
0: yeah, apocalyptic nightmare. Yeah,
1: and there was like a nice side of Bethlehem too. Like every town, it's like a nice side, but it wasn't like no one was going into town and like going to the cafe or anything like right. that. You know, it was like the college kids stay on the college side of town. Everybody else had their house, and so luckily it was only about an hour out of New York City, hour and a half. Oh, okay. hour and a half, hour fifteen for like you know, train ride. Or? Yeah, no, driving. Okay, yeah. Um, so I would drive in. I started in the summer between my. Junior and senior year of college, like doing stand up, or maybe it was my sophomore and junior, and then like during the year I would just drive in to New York City and do like amateur night and do it On the quiet. weekends kind of thing? Yeah, and- or even like I used to do Wednesdays a lot. So I would like just leave Lehigh at like, you know, five in the afternoon, get in there, do a seven thirty show, drink for a little bit, drive back.
0: Were there are there some people of note that you were starting out with in New York, do you remember? Um I still- was trying to think of people who
1: who've kind of like blown up I mean Amy Schumer was. Uh, she got into it probably a year or two after I did. Mm-hmm. I remember doing a bringer show that used to happen at Gotham all the time, and she was on. That was that was one person that was like, "Holy shit, she Would is you? the one that went." That oh, really? Went bu- like ballistic. Yeah. I mean, her because you is, remember
0: like her starting out. Obviously. Totally. Yeah,
1: and I mean, her acts totally changed. She's matured. It's, right. it's way better. I mean, we're all way better than we were 15 years ago or whatever. I don't right. know if it's been that long for her, but it's. Probably pretty close. You know, I was probably maybe a year or two out of school when she kind of like started doing the little brainer show that I used to do like once a month. But it was crazy because a lot of, like, the kind of last generation, as comedians, we, like, look at generations completely differently. You know, there's guys that are just, like, a few years ahead of us. But, like, the Jim Gaffigans and the Louis C.K.'s and the Mitch Hedbergs, Mm -hmm. those guys were just, like, regulars at the comic strip. And you're like, oh, he's fucking hilarious. And now it's like Jim Gaffigan is, like, everybody knows who Jim Gaffigan is. But he had a spot there, you know, every night. And you're like, oh, he's funny. Talks about bacon a lot. Now it's like. Holy shit. You know, Louis C.K. for a long time was just Louis C.K. Like, yeah, you're just like, the,
0: the local regular. Yeah, kinda. I think he works for like – it would be
1: like, I think he works for Chris Rock. Somebody says
0: he he wrote Pootie Tang and you're <laughs> like, all right, whatever. Yeah. It's amazing. It's like wow. our it, Carlin, Yeah, you know? and it happens quick too. Like everyone expects it to be like an overnight success, but it's not. Like you said, they've been guys been doing it for 25 years. Yeah. And then they hit their break and it's like, yeah, of course they hit their break. They've been working at it for this long, but people just assume that they came out of nowhere. Yeah. And you know you saw him back in the day in New York, and I'm sure a lot of other people did too, so when you graduated college, was it just focused mainly on stand up right out of college, or were you um still I mean, kind of just dabbling in i that d- and- I
1: dabbled in it for sure, like it was right out of school, I went at it pretty hard in that I was doing like a couple of i was a couple of years into kind of like the amateur scene, so it was I was good enough where the guys who would run bringer shows would be like, okay, you don't have to bring people. You come host and make fifteen bucks. And then I was getting a couple of regular spots. I was doing a lot of like late night shit, barking for spots. Wasn't you know totally like a noob. I was like a couple of years in, but still like dancing on the periphery. Wasn't past anywhere or anything like that. But I, when I first got out of school, I started working at CBS. Um, I was a page. At CBS for for Letterman. No, oh, not for Letterman, oh, okay. but for, uh, but that was like my plans. Like, Oh, right. I'll just go there. And Letterman actually is a completely, it's its own entity from CBS. Like, well, it's worldwide pants. Yeah. Right? So, so his, his interns and his pages and his, all that, that's just his, his deal. CBS, which was only five blocks away from his thing, which was the CBS broadcast center in New York. You work on every show, But not Letterman. (laughs) You know what I mean? It's like his is his own thing. But uh, yeah, I was a page and worked for you know worked for the the morning show. It's not today's show is NBC. I forget what it's called. CBS, it's like, the early show. Yeah, yeah. The early show worked for, you know, the NFL Sunday, worked for uh, CBS Sunday Morning with Charles Osgood. Oh, I love uh, that. Yeah, that was a great one. The only thing that sucked about that, like I loved the show and I was like, this is something that you, I didn't even know it was on TV when I was a kid, you know, because it's, mm-hmm. on, it's on so fucking early on a Sunday morning. Yeah. But when I started working, I was like, man, this is cool. It's like five minutes of birds right there. Like, <laughs> yeah, why is this on TV? But then I was like, you gotta be there at four AM on Sunday. And I think I did it for like three weeks. Just couldn't and then like I just like literally didn't make it one week and yeah. they're like, What the fuck? And I was like, I don't think this isn't gonna be for four me. Four in the morning on yeah. Sunday is my, my thing. I'm twenty one years old and I'm out till four on yeah. Saturday night. So I ended up working, um I worked you know, I just bounced around the page department for a long time, uh, just doing whatever and then I got hired by the C B S Evening News with Dan Rather. So I was a desk assistant for, for Dan Rather for a couple of years. Okay, That's a yeah. pretty legit job. Yeah. it was legit, paid horrible, long hours, long hours, but like not a ton to do, except when there's news. Like it's very like the job is nothing, and until then' it's it's everything, right? Yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? Like a plane goes down and you're like, holy shit, a plane goes down, like yeah. and, every, and everybody's scrambling
0: accrued. to get the, the latest update. Yeah. And, it's yeah.
1: like the, the busy days are like an episode of the newsroom you know yeah but like 99 percent of the days are just like we're still at war with
0: afghanistan and just rewrite that with new numbers do you remember like your first time getting paid to do stand-up like do you remember the gig do you remember the the um i don't remember
1: i don't remember my first like like actual money transaction like here's like five bucks or something Mm -hmm. like that but uh because that was i feel like Probably the first thing I paid was like, oh, here's 15 bucks to host a show. But I remember the first couple ones where I got paid de- decent amount. money. Yeah, I was probably three years out of school. One of the guys that I graduated with, his brother was at Lehigh and lived with the, you know, entertainment kid. And so he was like, hey, this guy's an alum. Here's his video we should have him come and they were like okay come do an hour for $1000 and i was like fuck Ooh, yeah wow. yeah. <laughs> yeah that's like rent for my month yeah, and man. uh i don't have an hour but i'll make it work right. and so that was the, that was one of my first like big money gigs and then i got you know you do like a couple hundred bucks like kind of regional out of new york work like you go bananas in new jersey for the weekend and 300 bucks but the one that sticks out is kind of like oh i'm starting to do something was like when I started doing kind of colleges mm-hmm. as a young and and just like making 500 to 1,000 bucks, you're like, wow.
0: So getting that grand, that first experience when you feel like you were unprepared, like you didn't have an hour, like, can you talk about that experience a little bit in terms of like how great you felt? Getting the check, we were just like calling mom and dad, it's been like, Look what I did. Yeah. Well it was like a microphone it was no, I mean it was like calling mom and dad
1: and being like, Okay, so good news. I don't have to borrow anything this month. You know, like not fifty dollars, like in fact, like here's two hundred back for like June when you had to hook me up. But going in, just no like it was a lot of pressure because that was the first time where it's like when when you're like doing comedy and you're really working at jokes and somebody hands you fifteen bucks. You don't feel like you owe them anything. You could go fart on the mic, you know. Like, you're like you're giving me fifteen bucks, and you, as a young comic, like the economics of comedy can really piss you off. You know, you're you're counting. Okay, everybody here paid fucking 10 bucks. Every mm-hmm. drink's 9 bucks. They have to drink 2. That's 28 bucks a person. There's 400 people here. Do the math. They gave me $15. Like, I'm making 0.04% of what they're bringing in. And right. I'm doing, like, fuck you. You know? You don't really feel like you owe a club anything. But when, when a school's like, come do an hour for $1,000, I was like, I better do an hour. Mm-hmm. If I do 55, like, because I need $1,000. i am I don't know how this works, if they dock me per minute or whatever. I just went up and it was good that it was like my first real college gig of, of like a headlining spot was my school because I ended up doing 15, 20 minutes on like – Just on like on the like dorm local, that everyone yeah, <laughs> lived in. That like was, how the parking guys are assholes yeah. there, you know what I mean? And like I remember it was uh, outside – we had like the university center where all of our mailboxes are and there was like a, a sub – place called Subversions that was like the sandwich shop. And I remember just opening up with being like, guys, you know, I know a lot of you are uh, majoring in economics and business and engineering, big engineering school. I was like, uh, that's good. I have a, lot of, a lot of people I graduated here with do that. Now they all work at Ernst & Young and all that stuff. But if you major in journalism, you could come tell dick jokes outside subversions one day <laughs> and people were like, Oh, you know, like it yeah. immediately connected with like, he's one of us. Right. And, uh, no. I knew I was off on like a good, I was like, I can just riff on all local shit and it yeah. will be fine.
0: Um, uh, so you mentioned borrowing money from mom and dad is, did that last a while after college or were you,
1: I mean, it wasn't, I would say it's still lasting a little bit like today. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? It's like, comedy especially when i started doing comedy full-time it's so hot and cold that it's like when you have money you have money and when you don't have money you're like fuck like and i mean even to this day i'll be like i have a check that's in the mail for like five grand but shit i don't know when it's gonna be here like i'll call my brother today and be like you gotta give me 200 bucks and i'll give you 300 on friday you know Mm -hmm. like full you know wimpy fucking hamburger styler uh but um Definitely like right out of school. Even working at CBS, like I worked I think I think we got like nine bucks an hour or something like that. And I'm living in New York City and I'm twenty two years old. That's like four hundred and fifty bucks a week or something like that. Like after tight like and my rent was you know, a thousand dollars. So you're looking at like six hundred bucks for the month. I would wake up and have two hundred dollar bar bills. <laughs> Where I was just like I was just like, Holy shit Yeah, what I like, what the fuck happened? You know, and it's like that's just not enough money. And uh so for a while it would be it wouldn't be like every month like, Oh, I need money, but it'd be like, Hey, for my birthday, you know, I could really use just two hundred bucks cash. Yeah. And I mean my parents were always so fucking great about that stuff. My mom mocks me to like this day. She's like, you know
0: what, are you gonna pay me back that fifty yeah. bucks so I Or get just like in remember April of two thousand four? Yeah.
1: But like a quarter million dollar education and you are telling dick jokes. Yeah. You know what I mean, but uh, it's all like I know that it's they all unjust, It's I'm totally sure. they all in jest They sound unjust. pretty supportive. So so supportive. And and I've talked to my mom about it too. She's like, I guess that's like the downside of like sending your kids to the best school where, you know, they read the best books and they learn like you can be whatever you want to be. No one wants to be a fucking ditch digger. The like creative freedom yeah. the, the cre- intellectual. Totally. Yeah. Like, you know, being around that, you're really like, holy shit. Like, you're reading about the American dream and shit like that when you're in school. And you're like, fuck this. The yeah. American dream certainly not being a page at CBS News right. for your whole
0: life. There's definitely a, an era of, like, entitlement that the undergrad gets when they graduate. And especially from a pretty good university. Yeah, yeah. You know, just feeling entitled and feeling like that you can make your dreams come true, even if that's not true for a lot of people. Yeah, you know, it's nice that you had parents that supported that. Right. Though, so it's w- kind of like, hey, you, you know, you you, you did this to
1: yourselves. Yeah. You know, you really made me feel like I could do anything. <laughs> yeah. You were great parents about that.
0: So you live in LA now. Can you talk about making making the move from New York to LA? Yeah,
1: I was. Like it's five years ago, just about five years ago now. I moved June of 2010, and. I always just like I hadn't even ever visited L.A. a ton or spent like a lot of time here or knew anything. I just knew L.A. from like TV, like palm trees, beach, bikinis, the whole thing. Mm -hmm. And it all immediately as a kid even was just like, oh, I'm going to live there one day. That's going to be something I do. And even now, like I've still never been to Hawaii, but like there's something about Hawaiian culture that's like so amazing to me. I'm like one day I'm going to fucking live there. Like I know I knew forever. I used to. Read the Venice Beach Surf like years before I came here. Just like I would check the waves here every day for some random reason, and uh, I just had a calling. Yeah, and but the thing about New York and money is a big part of it. Is like New York, it is such a struggle just to survive in New York that the idea of like living there in a good part of town and scraping together enough money to pay your rent and drink and go out and you know buy the occasional thing. Like there was never enough money left over to be like, oh, I am just gonna go to LA for a week and like fucking check it out, or or the idea of I am gonna save enough money to move. So when I did finally do it, uh, my girlfriend at the time and I, she's from Arizona, went to school in San Diego. She's got a good friend here. We were like, let's just, you know, kind of pool everything together and and just like f- six months out from now, like I was coaching high school baseball at the time, and I was like, when the season's over. We'll just make our move and go out to L.A. and, and give that a shot. I, I had gone to a um, wedding in San Diego, and just I was just like, yep, SoCal's what I thought it was, like surfing and warm weather and all that. And I was like, if I'm going to move somewhere like that, it's got to be L.A. so I can keep doing comedy and kind of continue to pursue that. So it was only when I was 30 years old I finally... Put it together enough to come out to L.A.
0: And then it makes it easier moving out with the with the girlfriends, yeah. splitting the utilities and the rents and all yeah. that stuff. Didn't make it easy for our relationship, but I it made it easy for the and move. That, it was funny. I moved out here with, with my girlfriend too. Um, it was a new girlfriend at the time, and when I got here, uh, one of my buddies, he's like, "Oh, you moved out here with a girlfriend." He's like, "I got to tell you, every person that I've met that moved out here with someone." doesn't stay together with them. I was like, "No, it can't be, man. Like it's not going to be. It's going to be different for us." And of course, you know, 3 months later, break up. And then everyone since that I know that moves out, same thing. Yeah. It's and
1: just- and it's because it's on topic. I mean, we s- straight up broke up because of money. Like she she'll she would say, "Was she was she guilt-tripping you and not not having enough of it and not making enough?" Not having enough but also, like, oh, you don't seem like you're doing enough to try. To, like, it doesn't seem like you're putting the effort in to make more. And I was like, well, you don't really get like the comedy game, which is a lot of like, you go out, you put in your time, you hang out at these places, you get to know the right people. Like, so much of comedy is fucking free being labor. friends with the right <laughs> yeah. people and, yeah. and, and showing up and doing free shows and, you know, hobnobbing at the improv. Right. And it's two in the morning. And it's like, well, you just go out and you stay out late every night and then you get up late and you fucking smoke pot and then you hang around the house and then you fucking go out and do it all over again. I'm like, yeah, I'm going to do a show. I'm, then I'm networking. Then I'm sleeping. Then I'm getting up and I'm writing. It's like, to you, it's hanging out. To me, it's like the 24 hour day job that is like comedy. Um, or being any creative. Yeah, a, yeah, yeah. And so
0: just, you know, she she wanted... She wanted the traditional trajectory of let's get a family house car
1: or or even like why aren't you you know bartending and doing all that and it's like okay well i could do that right but i'm like all in on Mm -hmm. this like and we're young ish and we have a we have a little cottage in venice and we live by the beach like we don't need money for vacation we're on fucking vacation like let's walk to the beach that's vacation we used to live in new york it's snowing there right now not on the same page and
0: it's not for everyone man it's a, it's a hard it's a hard thing to relate to people unless they can understand it from experience or from empathy really you know cuz you when you do the comedy thing it's just it's so kind of ambiguous to a lot of people and they just can't understand that you are putting work in by being at the club or being those late hours or whatever it's really hard to communicate
1: yeah and and it's i mean it's like a cliche thing you like read Playboy mag and it's like I just want a guy who makes me laugh yeah. And I'm like, yeah, that's true for three months and then you want a guy who's gonna like take you to Hawaii. You yeah. know what I mean? Like it's definitely if, if unless you're in the world I mean I've never dated a comic. I don't think I could ever do that. Like I think it's too close. Too close. Yeah. But but you really unless it's somebody else who's like really creative and you know, a musician or whatever, it's like you don't understand like how much work goes into seeming like we're not doing anything. Yeah, work, you know. And
0: it's like I feel like money's always gonna be an issue until it hits.
1: Yeah. Yeah. You
0: mm-hmm. know? Like I'm sure all the guys that we were talking about earlier were having money problems and oh. probably relationship problems because of money. Yeah. And then they're becoming millions upon millions, you know, in a night. And then all of a sudden their relationships are fine. <laughs> yeah, That's like, so Then shallow. they find
1: like a really young girl who do- seems to love them just for who they are. Right. You know what I mean? But yeah, I mean, every relationship I've had probably since I started doing comedy in one way or the other was affected by money. With, you know, with a couple of exceptions where it's like, oh, she's young and cool or she's like an artist too
0: do you think that's because they want you to take care of them or they're just more materialistic than you are or what i,
1: th- I think um I, I for me what i've noticed is like they really don't like it's so easy to look at something and categorize it as not working like if i smoke a little weed and then i go to somewhere and have coffee with a notebook like that's where that happens, right? Like that's where the beginning of a joke starts and then you fucking write it down and then you write some punchlines. And then, yeah, there's taking it up on stage and working it out. But in in their eyes, it's like, so you got high and you went had coffee today? That yeah. was your day? Yeah. That was your day.
0: Okay. Okay. That was your day. Right. Okay. Good. Yeah. I'm glad, and then glad it's, that you're working too. And you're like, I am working. And it's even like when you're not even just writing it down physically, you're thinking, constantly thinking about yeah. it. And it is it is really hard to be engaged in, in, with that mindset because, you know, you could be on the couch with her and then just thinking about a bit and then completely disconnected from that moment. And then that's a whole nother argument in itself. Yeah. It's just nonstop.
1: I mean, even now, like it, the Connor, I mean, just in the five years since we've been out here, but like there's a modern shift where like my girlfriend now will be like, you're always on your fucking phone. And it's like, I'm not that guy who I, I'm not Mr. Social Media or whatever, but you have to be if you're a comedian in 2015, you have to be tweeting and you have to be updating your fucking podcast and you have to be doing all that. Like that, that shit you have to do to, you have to stay relevant. Yeah. To stay relevant. And it's like, Oh, you don't fucking hang out. You're just on your phone. And it's like, I'm not texting other chicks. Yeah. <laughs> I'm fucking tweeting that shit. I figured out at the cafe today. Right. Like
0: uh, it's a good joke. Yeah.
1: You
0: know? <laughs> I know. Ah, it's And this is the
1: time when you get a lot of retweets. Yeah. Seven at Peak nine. hours. Uh, yeah.
0: So, I think we kind of covered the uh, the history of Joe Prano in terms of where you grew up and money and all that stuff. I kind of want to get into like some some hypothetical scenarios and just like some personal uh, stories with money that you might have, sure. um, and things like that. I know that I've got some vices that I could probably cut out that would give me some more money in the bank account. Um, do you have any vices that are materialistic or just you know uh, passions or anything like that that not necessarily good or bad, but just that you spend a lot of money on?
1: I think I think really my my big one has always been I'm just like an eat drink and be merry kind of guy mm-hmm. like I'm definitely not a guy who's like well I have 400 leftover dollars this month so if I go to Ralphs and spend 80 bucks a week I'll still have 20 bucks for like emergency purposes and then I'll have all my groceries like I am a I want to eat this right now. I'm going to go eat it. I You're my a, friends want to go out and have a this. drink. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, just and I think that's kind of from my dad a little bit like he really created you know in our childhood like our house was the place to be. It was always like the place to barbecue, the pool party, like the bocce court in the backyard, people hanging out. It was very my dad was work hard, play hard. Just and, good times all the time. And I'm work yeah. hardish. Play really hard, you know. Yeah. Like, <laughs> <laughs> um, I just, uh, i I'll never turn down a poker game. I'll never turn down uh, going out and having a couple beers. I mean, I certainly went through years where I'm like, guys, I, I, literally, I just don't have any money to go drinking, or I would. Like, if I had the twenty dollars, I'd come spend it with you guys, but I don't have it. But I'm, I think that that would be my big vice is just like. I like to fucking hang out. I'm a man of leisure. So I'm not like a sneakerhead or, you know, a guy who's got to like always have something on his car. I don't always have the new phone. I'm not like anything like that. But I'm definitely but you're paying
0: ten bucks for a specialty cocktail when Exactly. You want to on a Tuesday afternoon. Exactly.
1: Or yeah. like I want an espresso, like I'm going to get one. Yeah. You know, I want a fucking beer in the middle of the day. I'm gonna go play poker. I'm gonna go to the beach. I'm gonna go whatever. Um and then I think on top of that, something that definitely was money out of my pocket for years was like going to concerts and shit like that. Like in New York, like being in the art scene and just being like, I have to go see this. These guys who are playing at Roseland or I have to go see this or I have to go see the fucking strokes and like all that stuff. And I feel like I've tapped out on that a little bit since I moved to L.A. and focused a little bit more on like, oh, just go to the beach and go surfing and do all that stuff. But like because you don't need to feel like you're in a scene like so many different scenes here. Um, But that was one that definitely was my vice for a long time was like every fucking band that i liked or yeah concert
0: or, uh, i'm the same way and it's like but the way i figure it, it's like if you're not materialistic and you're not a sneakerhead and you don't you know spend money on cars and all this other shit that is what money is for is to be spent on those experiences because typically the experience of I i've had you know in bars or at venues have been the best and you, yeah. you always remember that stuff and that's how you make new friends and just get out there and, and do something different besides staying in your house and being cooped up with all these gadgets around right. you and nice things that you can enjoy and speak to. Yeah. Know? Like I've totally grown yeah. out of like needing the
1: new Madden every year and having a PlayStation and like, you know, things that I, that
0: were vices. It just a becomes kid. so redundant. Yeah. You know, I'm just like, and
1: you're like, you're just wasting your time. So it's just like, for me, it's a lot of just like, I love to eat really well and I love to drink and I love to, you know, go out and see shows and shit like that. Yeah. So it's a lot of social recreation.
0: Yeah. <laughs> You mentioned uh, playing poker. Are there any like experiences that you had with like investments or regrets with cash that you've just lost like a bunch of money and you're just like, fuck, I can't believe I did that immediately afterwards, whether it be poker or yeah. stock market or anything like when that? When I
1: was 22, probably 23 years old, my first ever trip to Vegas, my buddies were like, we're going to Vegas. And I I literally didn't even have... I. I like I paid for the ticket when I had money and then I didn't really have that much money when I went to be like I think I went I think I went for a weekend in Vegas with like 200 bucks cash and then like another hundred bucks where my mom was like you're going to Vegas have a hundred bucks you know what I mean I, but I love to gamble I love playing cards and cards is the game in Vegas for you Cards is a game, I mean, when I was younger, I'd play a lot of, like, blackjack and craps and yep. and all that stuff. So I was still in, like, that mode then. I mean, now I play a lot of poker because I, you know, like, I'm like, okay, I only have X and o, like, and I want to minimize my runs, right. you know? So it's like, try to, try to play against – the house is always going to get your money. But at a poker table, the house is taking their money. Now it's about you versus somebody else. But on that trip to Vegas, I was so – Turned up for gambling <laughs> that, like, we got to the MGM where we were staying, and uh, they were like, well, your room's going to be ready in, like, 15 minutes. And I was like, cool, I'm going to go play, like, blackjack until then. And no joke, I put down, you know, 10 bucks or whatever, and uh, I get, you know, fucking 2 or whatever, and I split them, and I win, and, like, I was up, like, 40 bucks in, like, the first hand, and I was not... Like I went on – it was the craziest three-day like hot streak of my life where I was – me and my buddies would leave a casino and there would be limos outside. And I'd be like, how much to go to the Hard Rock? And they'd be like, $100. And my friends would be like, it's 30 feet down the road. I'm like, everybody in and like throwing money around and – So how much were you, were you winning? Like I think I was up probably at, – at my most, I was probably up like two, three grand.
0: Off of the hundred bucks?
1: Like off of the forty bucks like I sat down with like to start. Like I just I just put my money that was in my pocket. Holy shit. And made fucking so much money. And was just hot, hot, hot. Everywhere I went, hot. Like was at the hard rock one night, woke up the next morning in my boxer shorts and a
0: leather hard rock jacket. (laughs) And I was like, "What the uh, fuck is nothing this?" Nothing like a Hard Rock Vegas jacket. Yeah. And my buddy's like, "You with, bought that?" With like the that. felt like sleeves, yeah. like the leather middle.
1: Oh, my buddy's like, "You went to the bathroom stretch. and came back to the table and were wearing the jacket. You like bought it with chips." And I was like, "It doesn't even fit." And he's like, "I told you that when you fucking bought oh, it." Oh my god! And then, but here's the worst part: everybody goes to bed the last night before we leave and in like the four hours after they all went to bed and before we got on the plane, like the the hot streak in a cold streak times two, like I give it all back and the and the two hundred bucks that was Uh, like in cash that was in my wallet to start with. And like I go I think everybody went to bed and I think it was up like eighteen hundred bucks. And I lost the eighteen and like all the money I had uh, and and went to the bank and like took money out of like my rent, and I was like, "Motherfucker!"
0: The Vegas guys were like, "He's too hot." Yeah,
1: they, and the Vegas guys were like, "Oh, you had to throw it around. Though. Yeah, I had to take a fucking limo. <laughs> had to buy a leather jacket." Um oh I remember god. going. Did you try to sell the leather jacket back. Dude, trust me, <laughs> trust me. I try. I was like, I was like, this thing doesn't even fucking fit. Like, what if I mail it back to the Hard Rock in Vegas? And they're like, No.
0: Oh my god, that's so funny. Also terrible, but funny. I mean, I guess if you think about it, it wasn't too too big of a loss, just a few hundred bucks, right?
1: I think but, when all was said and done, like I think I put like, I mean it might have been like eight or nine hundred dollars that I lost. But when you're up, ah, uh, that, that happened it's like,
0: to me like when online poker first became a thing, like just got totally wrapped up in it and was like you know winning some cash and then I was like getting greedy, so I'd do like heads up games, like two hundred dollars yeah, yeah. heads up <laughs> games, and you're just like in this whirlwind of just chaos, and then you come out of you're like what the fuck just happened? Because you're just clicking the button. I know. And it's just like money doesn't even exist. And tilt in online poker is like a whole different thing. Oh, yeah. You
1: don't even have to get up from your seat and you're just like, and I'm fucking idiot. Why would I do that? Yeah. I'm so glad that honestly during pretty much the entire online poker boom, I was like too broke to have a credit card to put money. Like I was just like a straight like cash from work to cash at the bar like transactions.
0: Yeah, you could have been on the Uh, speech streets right here. Yeah, totally. So that's a good story. Do you uh, – if you do have some some extra cash lying around, or this could even be like free time. I know you mentioned that you coach baseball. Yeah. Do you give to charities? Do you feel like you're altruistic? Do you believe in charitable acts in this day and age? Or? Sure.
1: I always think like, oh, if I win the lottery, I'll just give 90% to charity and just take take the rest for myself. Like, I, I also like I, – I, I feel like I've always been – somebody especially in kind of like my high school years when I was with a lot of kids who had a ton of money. I had I had less money but I was still the one like, oh I got it. I got this. Like I'll take care of it. And and my first days out of college when I'm saying I woke up with two hundred dollar bar tab. I'd like force guys from work to go out with me like, I don't have any money. I'm like, fuck it, come, I'll buy. I didn't have any money either. You know, but it was like I like to give. I feels it feels good. I I went through such a long period of time where I didn't have any money to give that I was like, "Shit, I don't, you know, I can't give you that buck, dude. Like, I, I need you give me a dollar. You yeah. know what I mean?" Um, and I, I like to donate my time. That's a big, you know. Like I do the Big Brother thing, and I'll do beach cleanup and all that. It's like there are ways for to be charitable without just like forking over cash.
0: Oh, absolutely. I think those ways are more effective too, yeah. because you especially here, like now there's so much corruption in these major charity organizations and you don't even know where it's going. There's no, you know, you send the check, you get the receipt, but you don't know who that's going to. You don't know if it's going to the people who really need it. But if you do the hands-on stuff like you are talking about, that's what I commend because that's actually taking time out of your day. Uh, And you can value that hour to be whatever, you know, 40 bucks or whatever you make in an hour and then, you know, but you're actually making an impact on someone's life that's tangible and
1: i mean i did the whole like when i when i first got out of school we did comedy shows we would put together like a charity comedy show every year for my buddy for like a breast cancer association and it was like we would get these stacks of cash that we made doing i would be like do we have to give it to charity? Like right. so, but then we did, and it was like, oh my god! We found out after, like these are this comp these are these fucking charitable organizations that aren't using it for research at all, and it's like, and you're like, fuck this,
0: right? And you hear and you about use- like, I remember like, did you guys have like UNICEF when you were kids yeah. like, for holiday? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> like you, you know, you collect like eight bucks and change, and then you hear about this scandal that happens with them, you know, like the whole Lance Armstrong, Livestrong thing. It's bringing awareness, right? He's making millions of dollars, totally. you know, off of a brand of cancer essentially yeah, and it's just it's so strange that these people are comfortably doing that really doing nothing just bringing right. awareness But and
1: they can convince themselves it's worth you know they can convince themselves they're doing something good but yeah. anybody who sees the, the books is like this is
0: bullshit dude you're taking 80% of the money yourself yeah, and it's like nonprofit. I don't know. I'm just I'm like the way that you do, yeah. do charitable acts as opposed to just
1: and I, it was like again, I was kind of forced into it. It's like I just don't have any money and I want to do something, so I guess we'll do it this way. And now, like you know, you realize like this is the better way to do it anyway.
0: Do you have any like uh like any friends or family members that like annoy you with like their money habits, like whether they're like stingy or um, I don't know, it's like in general like tipping or anything like that. Is there any like. Money, things that annoy you about people.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think I'm probably that guy for a lot of people, um, especially, like I said, relationships or my parents or whatever. And they're like, "Oh, you you made a lot of money doing this. Like, what are you doing with it?" And it's like, oh, I'm just, oh, just in terms of not budgeting properly. Yeah, not budgeting and like prioritizing. Pra- yeah, prioritizing and yeah. like you know, oh well, I thought I'd go on vacation. It's like, motherfucker, you live on vacation, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, I have a brother. Who is like a fucking financial disaster and, and a scumbag con man, like, so sociopath. this is not,
0: this is, you're not revealing anything. This is commonly known by everyone in the yeah, family. Yeah, okay. this is commonly known. So I don't want you to throw your brother under no, the No, no, no. I've <laughs> talked about this on okay. multiple podcasts. Okay. And um, he's, my brother
1: was like a financial con man for a long time and, and would, I mean, he stole from me. We don't really speak because he took a lot of money from me and didn't
0: give it back. And let's talk about that. Stole from if my. Not, if, you, if it's yeah, no, no, guy.
1: it's totally. I mean,
0: it's one of those. Was this ever since he was like a little kid? You could just sense that he was going to be this kind of guy. Well,
1: definitely in some. Like he was always like an evil genius. And yeah. and when I say like he's one of the smartest kids, he's one of the smartest guys I've ever met. Just manipulator, but just yeah, super evil, with charming, him. always yeah. doing something bad, always plotting. You know, the 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 stereotypical like villain, villain, of, yeah. like too smart for his own good, like into fire. You know, like <laughs> <laughs> like into yeah. into like weaponry. <laughs> you know, like like you know, I remember like one year I was like I wanted like a you know a baseball glove for christmas he wanted a crossbow yeah. you know and he had to have the paintball gun he had blow guns he's like killing animals like yeah. the whole thing sociopath sociopath yeah. was doing bad shit on the internet when we did not know what the internet was like you me everybody is like the al gore didn't know what the internet was yeah. yet he and my just, brother was already like stealing on the internet and like changing his grades on the internet or like you know changing his attendance on the internet or like finding out personal information of people on the internet i'm like I'm the what and it, it was, was like, like a cia th- shit yeah. yeah oh and and he went deep down rabbit holes like so his his thing was he was kind of like a internet he was always like a computer like super geek but like again always like evil like always up to no good And you're like, what are you doing with the phone line? You know, like, (laughs) why can't we use the phone right now? And he's like, I'm working. (laughs) And you're like, what is going on in your lair? Money transfer from Belarus. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, So I remember when, I guess it was, I was in college still. And he was like, he was like, actually, my brother was like still in college too. He was like three years older than me, but like didn't finish school, then went to like Community college finished, then went into some other school, and now he's claiming he's doing his master's. And it's like it just kept going and kept going. But he got a job with a – And were your folks supporting this the whole time? Yeah. I mean he was like living at home. Yeah. He had like a girlfriend who's like a local girlfriend. But like he would be in his room and just like doing shit on the computer and like claiming to go to school and whatever. But like also – Failing half his classes and like winning awards in half his classes, you know what I mean? It's like, oh, well, he fixed the whole online school directory, but like, meanwhile, he's like, actually, I stole all of their information. You know what I mean? He was the cause and the solution of. of I remember even when we were when when I was really young, like, uh, so one famous person who lived up in Westchester was Chevy Chase, and he had a network issue like at his house with his computer. My Somehow gets wrapped up like John Prano's, like this whiz kid. Goes over, fixes it, comes home, has a, like, on a floppy disk or, like, you know, the old square hard disks. Like all of his back. Chevy Chase's entire Rolodex. Oh my God. And we would prank call, like, Steve Martin, John Candy, <laughs> like Lorne Michaels. Oh
0: my god, yeah. that's so great! We would,
1: we would have, we had two phone lines at my house. At one point, my dad put in like the office style yeah. phone system where you could like conference other rooms and whatever. We would call, like, we'd call Steve Martin and then call Martin Short and then conference him and mute ourselves. And you'd hear like Steve so Martin, like, confused. I'm like Martin, you called me, and he's like, you called me, Steve, uh, you called me, and then they'd like start talking about shit. Like, did your wife know about this yet? And I'm, I'm like, I'd be like, what the fuck? What? Like crazy. Like all, like everybody you can imagine. Chevy Chase had their phone. Like, I mean, everybody here,
0: hear in, like some some pretty all
1: kinds of like crazy shit. Like all nonsense. Like I mean, Bill Murray's phone numbers. You know what I mean? Like. And we were just and but we're dickheads. You know, yeah. we're just like high school kids. We're just like, fuck it, let's see what they'll say to each other, or yeah. let's see what will happen if we call fucking Steve Martin and Did and, you like hear anything like scandalous? I mean I remember I forget who it was. I want to say it was like Martin Short and somebody and somebody was like, Did your wife find out about this chick or whatever yet? Like, does she uh, know about this? And he was like, No, but I think she knows yeah. and we're like, Oh, so you're he's cheating on his yeah. wife, like but it was, like, all kinds of, like, little crazy shit like that. Like, can't believe you did this the other day. And it's like – but also guys who had – like, we didn't know. That's the, unbelievable. the inner workings. Like, guys who hadn't talked in 10 years. You yeah. know what I mean? you're just like, what are you – why are you calling you, you me? You
0: could be the cause of, like, a, a newborn relationship between these two people. And I was, cool.
1: like – I was always a big comedy fan. But, like, again, I wasn't – like, I never thought about a career in comedy. Yeah. So looking back, I was like, holy shit, like – I've been on the phone with all these motherfuckers yeah. oh. talking about pizza and shit. Um, That's hilarious. Yeah. That's a great story. But my brother, to go back to like kind yeah. of how evil his, he is. Yeah, his <laughs> evil like financial doings is uh, he got a job. There was this company that was back in the day, t- like ticket scalping, like what StubHub basically does now, mm-hmm. was completely illegal. Um, you couldn't like up upmark tickets, you'd have to like sell them outside outside the venue. Like, hey, you want them? They're a fucking 100 bucks to see Springsteen or whatever. But he... Everyone was doing it. Yeah, everyone was doing it. So a company that he, uh, that hired him, they were like, hey, we need somebody to design our website. Like, the internet's becoming a big thing. We want to be able to like put all of our tickets up there and like, this is what we have, this is what we don't have. They were based in Connecticut because you couldn't do it interstate, like inside the state. You couldn't sell tickets for New York shows in New York, but you could do it from Connecticut, so we were just across oh, is the border. That like prevent scalping? Yeah, more or something? I guess. Yeah. But we were in Greenwich. He was in Greenwich, and it was right across the border. You know, thirty-five minutes from New York City, and uh, so they were like, "Can you just redo our website?" He goes to work for them, and uh, he's like, "So yeah, the website stuff. Uh, whatever, whatever, whatever." I broke into Ticketmaster's system. I've hacked into their system, and now what we can do is uh, I've set an internal clock. To go off like five minutes earlier just for our IP address. So when like say Springsteen goes on sale at 10 a.m. for us it goes on sale at 9:55. So you can buy all the tickets, all the resell. good fucking tickets, and then resell them. And uh, and they were like, oh, uh, you did what? And he's like, yeah. So I'm gonna go ahead and take like a 95% raise, and uh, I'm never doing this website shit ever again. And I'm just gonna come in like the two times a week that big things go on sale, and you're gonna pay me a ton of money. And I want all the person. They were like, yeah, whatever, bro. Like you just. Somehow made it so that we could get everything we ever wanted whenever we want. Yeah. And uh and he did that for a while, like so FBI what's, was, yeah, on. I was gonna say,
0: like, what's the legality of that? FBI was
1: on it for a while. But like this is this is where I say like he's he's always been evil. Like at one point Ticketmaster was like, Hey, why don't you take like a five hundred thousand dollar a year job with us and a- stop, and stop doing that. people yeah. from doing this? He's like, Nah, fuck that. You know, yeah. like I like Going to, like, sitting front row at, like, the best concerts in New York and flying places to go to, like, the National Championship game and the World Series. because so he's, I, like, CEO material.
0: Like, he's, like, you know, because that's yeah. kind of what those guys do at that level. Totally. Is scam the shit out of people. And he's just really good at it. Yeah. And he always
1: was, like, money hungry. Like, how do I do this to make a ton of money? And then You think
0: for cash or just for the thrill of, like... For the thrill and then, like, the
1: cash so that he could do other bad shit, you know? Yeah. Like, like what was it? You the just strip, parlay. Trip clubs and, like, travel and, yeah. and, like, always throwing around money and all that. So is he in jail now? What's- he's not in jail right now. Technically, he's wanted. Technically. But that's... Uh, so he got... The, Ticketmaster eventually found somebody who was like, we figured out how to stop this kind of yeah. shit. Yeah. And the, he became completely expendable to his company. They're like, "What? You, what you do is not uh, done anymore. So goodbye." And then he tried to keep doing it on his own, which was like buying tickets and then reselling them. But he got caught a couple times where he like basically sold tickets that he didn't have, and, and was like, "Oh, I'll take your money, and then I'll use some of that to go buy it from the person I know who has it, and then I'll sell it to you. And I'll take the, I'll he'll, he was of the tickets, yeah." And he just got caught a couple times, like, not delivering. Taking money, not delivering, spending it like an asshole before he had made the money for real, and uh, burned a couple people, spent fucking 50 days on Rikers, and then skipped out on, like, a bench warrant, and is technically wanted, although they're, like, he's not a murderer, so he's like they're like not a petty. Like, looking yeah. for him, but he doesn't drive just so he doesn't get pulled over and, like, shit like that. Shit. But, like,. In that whole thing, like, had to make money to to pay people back, like, stole from me, stole from my parents, yeah. stole from my aunt, stole from everybody, like... he's was a criminal. Yeah. and yeah. But and, but he's the guy, like, always has the new iPhone.
0: Yeah, always yeah. has
1: the fucking new clothes. Always has the new shit. And, I, like, I, I, I remember... He's caught up, man. Yeah. He's and I was up. like, fuck you. Like, one time I took, like... He got the iPhone like when the iPhone came out. Like this, like five Steve Jobs before, had one. He had, five minutes. Yeah, before. Five minutes before. <laughs> yeah. He had the first iPhone, yeah. and I remember taking it. We were out at a bar. I wasn't like we weren't like hanging out, but like he was there, I was there, and I just fucking snatched his iPhone. I'm, like fuck you, you owe me so much money. I'm, like, How much I'm did he steal this. from you? He took like fifteen hundred bucks.
0: Which? How did he get access to your? Like he borrowed it. Like you gave it he, to him. He literally did
1: the same thing that he did to other people. Like I got. He was like in the ticket game still, and like I didn't know he was like uh, whatever. So I was like, Hey, me and 12 friends want to go to Pearl Jam. And like he's like, Great, I have fucking Pearl you, Jam and seats. And you
0: tell all your buddies, We're going to Pearl Jam, with yeah. the seats, and then they just can come.
1: And through. then, like, and then like they all give me 125 bucks for like front row tickets to Pearl Jam. And then, like, now I'm like stuck paying people back. And then and I'm uh, and, like, some of my friends who I grew up with were like, Oh, you're scumbag, yeah, evil they, they brother. Knew. Like, we're cool, like. We know you don't have the money, but other people, I was like, "Sorry, like, I got to get you your money back," and like, just put me in a shitty position with like a dozen friends. What and, an uh, Yeah. So he's yeah. He's, the he's, the he's the guy in the family. He's the guy in the family with money. Fucking.
0: That was a, I mean, that was a great story though with the <laughs> the SNL stuff and and all the internet stuff. Um, just a couple of questions left. We're kind of wrapping up here. You mentioned like winning the lottery. Kind of a question that I have is, what do you think your day-to-day life would be like if there was a million bucks tomorrow on your bank account? How do you think day-to-day life would change? Do you think it would be drastically different? Or you'd probably be doing the same stuff?
1: I, I think it'd be pretty much the same. Um, I think the one thing about being poor for a long time uh, that gives you kind of kind of clarity is you don't need all the shit that you think you need. Like I've been in in LA and living in Venice for five years, I have been in my, I've been in seven different places. I've been in my fair share of like the modern day, like micro living situation. You know, you're living in a garage and you got a fucking bed and you got a surfboard and you got, you might not even have a fucking oven. Um, And I think like if I had, if I had a bunch of money tomorrow, like I feel like I would get a nice little place you know, close to the beach where my life could just be me, my surfboard, my bike, you know, and just like it would be an investment in like location and and not big. Like I'm not talking about I don't need the fucking just super a one house. Better, beach. Yeah. Just like one, one bedroom, guess. a studio, just like with a little outdoor area with a fucking table where I can have coffee. Like I've I've always thought like, man, if I get a bunch of money, it'll be like making something really, really nice but not really, really, like, opulent, you yeah. know, because you just don't need it.
0: Well, and also you, like, we adapt to our, our surroundings, you know. Like, if you make yourself comfortable with a one-bedroom place, you're going to be fine with that. But yeah. it's like once you get into this huge, luxurious house, then there's like, oh, I need more because this isn't enough anymore. Like, everything becomes very normal after a certain amount of time. So you kind of have to train yourself to be like, okay, simplicity is nice. And it's like, you know, also, like, I think about that, like, we, you're a guy who likes leisure. I might just be like, you know, take friends out to dinner. Yeah, eat at nicer restaurants, drink nicer beer. Totally.
1: <laughs> yeah, and 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 that's the thing. I mean, if I had like cash, then it would definitely be, you know, it's like let's all go. So I'll go on a surf trip. Let's all go to a ball game and sit in like the first row behind the plate, which like you always see. Who are those assholes? <laughs> yeah, you know, like let it let let it be us. Let's yeah. go to Vegas for a weekend. Like <laughs> let's be those assholes. Yeah, let's be those guys. And 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 honestly, like I I really do think like it would be a very small life. It's like spend less so that you can play more. Um, but at the same time it's like if I had if I had a chunk of money I might just like try to buy my old house that I grew up in like my dad really had it fucking dialed yeah. and I'm like growing up I was just like I want to get out here it's so boring and now I'm like holy shit you had the best existence ever yeah. as a kid like go back there
0: yeah I think that's kind of how society is going too in terms of like we are I hope kind of getting away from that life of the rich and famous lifestyle and appreciating you know Food and just environment and those kind of things more than actual material wealth. Which- it's it's
1: less important uh, how much your meal costs as how many likes it gets on Instagram. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. If it didn't get two hundred likes on Instagram, was it even delicious? Yeah,
0: <laughs> I know, right? Um, so that kind of like leads me to like a, kind of the wrap up of the talk is like not to get too too political about it, but just. Where our economic system is right now and the disparity between the rich and the poor has been a huge topic in politics, how do you think that's going to play out in the next few years? Do you have any you know, grassroots solutions that you think that could help? I think it's going to keep
1: going the way it's going. I think the system is set up uh, like the people in charge – are well aware that this is happening and are causing it to happen and like separating the 1% from the 99% from the or separating the 1% from the 90% from the 9% that they want to keep right. total poverty the pyramid yeah um so like you know I got pretty political for a little while there where it was like I want to make a difference I want to do that and then I was just involved in a lot of things where you really like when you're smoking a lot of weed and reading a lot of books and like reading a lot of shit on Wikipedia, you're like, oh, this shit is set up so that you can't beat it. Like the hippie culture is dead for a reason. Like it's not like we all decided we don't want to all fuck each other and are into peace. It's like that was crushed. It wasn't Yeah, it, systematically it, yeah, destroyed. It wasn't it didn't just that wasn't just a hippie movement. It was like, oh, we're moving on to the next thing, which is like McDonald's. It was like, no, we're gonna be about brands and we're gonna be about money and capitalism and if you're not into that, you're a fucking communist and like peace, love, dope, fuck you. Like it's all been systematically destroyed, like like with a plan. And unfortunately, like the economic system could be fixed in like one move. And 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 the one move is we call it the, you know, Department of Defense. If we used our Department of Defense funds to defend ourselves, set up a a fucking military system that defends the shores of America and all of its ports and all that shit and took the military industrial complex out of the thousands of places around the world where it's just drone striking and fucking bombing people the trillions of dollars that we save you could hand everybody tomorrow a check for 10 grand right 100 grand you know uh, but we're too the, the people who make money on that shit make a lot of money being in fucking war and shit and that's the way it's set up to do it we're like, people go, oh, the, do you think the gun control situation is why? It's like, motherfucker, everybody's bred on violence. All we do is go around the world spending money,
0: fighting people that puts money in the pockets of 1% of people. Yeah, there's a great, uh, I don't know if you've seen, there's a great documentary called Why We Fight. It's made in, I think, 2005 by um, Eugene Jarecki. He's a documentary filmmaker. He also did uh, The House We Live in. Okay. So why we fight is just what you're talking about, mid- military-industrial complex, and then his other doc is about the uh, incarceration-industrial complex. Right. So, yeah, it's the same thing. Like, and also, I always get caught up in, like, we have enough weaponry to protect ourselves against the entire world, and yet we're still putting billions into new technology. And yet you know we're like, oh, it's because we're, you know, we're safe. We're protected. We have been protected. Yeah
1: we don't need to keep
0: like the cold war was we have the
1: bomb you have the bomb no one's using it right that's it like we solved the like no one's ever gonna like oh but pakistan has it who gives a shit right if they use it we use it the whole thing's over like no that's it's a big poker game and everybody's bluffing yeah so this whole like we have to go in there and stop iraq from having weapons of mass destruction which they don't right uh is bullshit like we've got all of the weapons of mass destruction. Why are we allowed to have it? But we have to fight everybody else who tries to have it. It's yeah. like crazy. I just think, you know, we got to get out of everybody's business. Let's fucking mind our our own business. Stop breeding more and more people who hate us by being in their business. I mean, ISIS is fucking Saddam's army, right. you know? And Al-Qaeda, we created Al-Qaeda. Yeah. Like, Al-Qaeda bombed. They use our old uh, weapons for, me now. It's like Al-Qaeda was like an, uh, our force to fight the Russians. Yeah. And they're like, fuck you. We're going to – you know. look, I'm, I don't get into the whole – I mean I do a little bit, but I don't go around preaching about like Bush did 9-11 or anything like right. that. But it's like well, you in, in a, a way that. we – all of the people that have ever been involved in the military and industrial complex did 9-11. You know right. what I mean? It's like you set up a whole thing where everybody hates us because – we're all around the world. We're like killing innocent people and bombing people and shit like that. It's just like, yeah, and hey, occupying territory, occupying territory. Yeah. yeah, and making people hate us is just like, hey, the best offense is a good defense. Take our defense fund, use it to defend ourselves. Which is like, hey, all up and down the coasts, you know, down like San Clemente or out in like mm-hmm. Montauk. Let's put all those like World War II style bases back to work and be like, hey, come at us. You right. want to come at us? We got we got all that shit here now. Otherwise, what you guys do is you're a fucking problem, and I mean we would have so much money left over we, you know, you get a car and you get a car. <laughs> you know, we go full yeah. Oprah. Yeah, exactly. But again, that's not going to happen because the one percent makes fucking tons of money on all that shit. I don't know. I'm kind of a pessimist in in, in terms of like, our social and economic and like what. Because it seems happen. so obvious. Yeah, you know, and it's just but. But, like, these days even, you know, like the Egypt, you know, everybody else started on Facebook and we're going to overthrow a government with, like, social media. Like, try that here, dude. They're reading all of it. Like, you put, you put, uh, you know, protest into your fucking G-chat too many times, they're going to show up at your house. Like, it's, we're, like, we're the best country because we have the smartest people, but they're also, that's also being used against us, you know? Like, you if you try to fucking revolt... It ain't, yeah. gonna, it ain't going anywhere, bro. Just no. Your your best chance of revolting is honestly doing what we're doing or being a musician or whatever and getting a voice that a ton of people are listening to and then being like, hey. You know, like. Yeah. These people. Getting like, the message out there. And then that's a dangerous game too, you know? Yeah. Random person kills John Lennon. Yeah. You know, like. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs>
0: Exactly. Peace. peace on earth. Oh uh, yeah, let's <laughs> we, we gotta nip that in the bud. Yeah, it's it's insane. It's crazy. Well, thanks, man. I think that about wraps stuff. Do you want to uh, plug your podcast or anything? Yeah. Or? So uh, like like yours
1: here. I I have one podcast that is very very niche uh, that I do with <laughs> Lachlan Patterson. It's called the Cooks of Comedy. Uh, we talk surfing. We talk comedy. And we talk uh, surprisingly the thousands of things that those things have in common um, so if you're it's just the two of you or do you guys have guests too we have guests we have we have comedians who surf uh, come in and, or comedians who will go surfing with us come in and then we do every once in a while we'll do some like a surf show where we have a guy shapes boards or whatever but a lot of it's like comedy you know just like both involve standing up on something <laughs> and both involve like a lot of water time or yeah. stage time or whatever. Yeah um the wave is the audience yeah ever the same yeah exactly (laughs) exactly but it's you know it's just it's a lot of me and lachlan hanging around hanging out and it's kind of under the what's uh, he been up to i haven't seen him in a while he's crushing it on the road because you know he was on the last comic and and now he can go wherever he wants but he's getting a little burnt out um he wants to surf more and and be in shitty midwest towns less so yeah i can um, imagine Hopefully, those are, there's a kooks of comedy, Coastal Tour, coming your way soon. Nice. Uh, but if you like surfing and comedy, uh, listen to that. And then I do another podcast with Andy Ruther, which is the Dirty Sports Podcast. Straight up sports, like ESPN, but without the filter. Yeah. And, uh, and yeah, just kind of your twice-a-week typical sports radio show. And you can find those on iTunes? You can find both of those on iTunes, yeah. And, and everything's linked on my site, com. And I'm on Twitter at Fix Your Life And, that should give you enough. Brands, to, brands, yeah, brands. should give you enough to follow anything. If you can't find it with all that information,
0: yeah. I don't know how you found this. <laughs> <laughs> cool, man. Well, I appreciate it. Thanks, Thanks for, for having me, yeah. dude.
1: So, how much do I get paid for this?
0: Well, there you have it the first episode of the Talking Cash podcast. Thank you for tuning in. And be sure to follow my guest, Joe Prano, on Twitter and Instagram at Fix Your Life. And also subscribe to his podcast, the Kooks of Comedy podcast with his co-host, Lachlan Patterson, and the Dirty Sports podcast with his co-host, Andy Ruther. If you liked what you listened to today, we'll be releasing these episodes every Tuesday. So subscribe to this podcast on Libsyn and iTunes. And remember that money is meant to be spent. Thank you so much for tuning in once again, and we will see you soon.